0: uh what are we yes jesse
2: what are we talking about today
0: we are v- revisiting my friend and yours professor jean honey who uh-huh. wrote that great book about the sacrifice of the mass and we talked about this in an episode in a previous season but now that we're talking about the eucharist i thought we'd come back to this and talk about it a little in a little more depth partly because i understand it better now our friend james paulie professor at Franciscan University has a journal called the Catechetical Review, and he asked me to write an article about this, so it should be coming up in March. And uh, we're going to dive deep into the inner workings of the Eucharist. Pretty fascinating stuff.
2: All right. I always love when you talk about Jean Heine, so I'm excited about this. Let's get started.
0: Straighten my tie first. With the <laughs>
2: oh, he's getting serious now. Mm-hmm. Oh, man.
0: Okay, so you remember our friend Jean Haini. This is John, like G-E-A-N. Jean Francais is John, and he wrote this great book published in English, but it has a French name. Do you want to hear it in French? Mm-hmm. You can call it La oh, Divine It's too hard in French. The Divine Liturgy uh Insights into its mystery. So what do we have here? Do you remember do either of you remember anything about this when we were talking about it last time?
1: Uh, do you remember
0: the homily the priest gave five minutes after mass is over this is the question
1: no although dennis you might find this funny. i got an invitation to speak to a group about john honey because we talked about it on the liturgy guys oh really <laughs> why'd <laughs> they call you <laughs> I yeah i know this you didn't even li- i'm yeah, the one who read the book li- li- that yeah, yeah. well I, I, I do have the book at least
2: oh so what did you uh what did you tell it.
0: them sure <laughs> that
2: reminds me dennis i just got a speaking gig about church architecture so I'm going out there in a couple weeks.
0: They said they mm-hmm. listened to the podcast yeah, yeah
2: so so thanks and for all of your yeah, help.
0: I just got one on baptism because you know
2: because
0: <laughs> we did a quiz well anyway Jean Hani you remember was professor at the University of Amiens which is one of the great cathedral towns. The university of Amiens was not like an old university it was a more modern university and you know they have to do things there they can't call it theology so he's a professor of comparative religions mm. if you remember our friend Father Eusebius Martis had a degree in comparative religions, I think, uh, as well as theology, one from the secular university, one from hmm. the uh, Catholic university. So that's kind of a French thing. So he studied what did the Egyptians do? What did the Greeks do? What did this do? And he sees these patterns of sacrifice in all of them and tries to find their essential qualities and then also to figure out how Christianity not only, um, you know, partakes in these same qualities, but actually fulfills them. So... Sacrifice is probably, as you've said, Chris, the part after the council that's been uh, neglected the most, although I counted the word sacrifice and it appears nine times in Sacrosanctum the uh, sacrifice you know, of the mass, the sacrifice of the mass. Yes, Chris.
1: I, uh, You remember that uh, year we did the, it was last year, we did the, the walk through the mass and the germ and stuff like that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, it is this is an in introduction to the germ. This is like in number two. It's sacrifice, 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 sacrifice. It's everywhere. You can't uh, you can't escape it. It's all over it in, in the new books. You mean it even doesn't say not... community
0: community gathering, community <laughs> it gathering, community gathering, that. community gathering. Doesn't
1: say that at all. So even if kind of in the popular mind that might be a lacuna, it's not in the doesn't appear to be in the books.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Right. And part of the challenge here is that the Last Supper doesn't look so much like a sacrifice, right? The sacrifice of Calvary does, sure. You know, Christ dies on the cross. But the question is, how does the Eucharist, how does the cross, the bloody and dramatic scene of the cross become the Eucharist, which is sort of, I don't know what you want to say, domesticated? Uh, In high liturgy, it's very refined, very elegant, and very uh, lovely. So, you know, there is a line from and Concilium that says, at the Last Supper, our Savior instituted the Eucharistic sacrifice of his body and blood. Hmm to perpetuate the sacrifice of the cross throughout the centuries, uh, a memorial of his death and resurrection. So there you go. Those those are the equating, the equating of the two right there, which sure, you know, if you're a a proof texter, yeah, I accept the teaching of Trenton. I accept that it's a sacrifice. Um, But then the question is, how does bread and wine turn, and a meal turn into the Calvary? And how does Calvary turn into Mass? So that's that's what and I want to talk about today. And if There's you some... took d-
2: Chris's quiz last week, you'd you'd understand that they're wrong. It's not the definitive <laughs> institution <laughs> of the Eucharist. That's you're... the that's the. They didn't really mean that. That's a bad trend. Wow, well, John, just saying <laughs> I, th- that that quiz happened like a couple weeks ago, and I'm still harboring uh, you know anger. So you're
0: going to uh, yeah, this is going to stay with you, isn't it? Always. All right. So any questions, boys? Should we just dive in?
1: Yeah, dive in. All
0: right, well, I've, well, I've read this article, Dennis. Oh, you me. have? Wow, well, yeah, hey, he thanks for you. It to me.
1: Yeah, Are you going right to start part? with these old tests? You're going to start in the Old Testament?
0: Yeah, well, let's talk about sacrifice first of all. So, yeah, I think you said recently and maybe four or five podcasts ago sacrifice is totally misunderstood. That we think it's all about destruction. But since you have, well, either of you, I guess, but you have the cheat sheet in front of you, Chris. Sacra and Fatre. sacrifice means what? Destroy and be miserable. Yes.
1: It means that "sacra" is a uh, holy, and uh, "facere" means to make or to do. To do. Um, so I I I I started this, uh, Dennis, because uh, um, it's a bouillé, a Louis bouillé thing, is that uh, he he it's would like Jesus. the to do to do the sacred thing is what mm-hmm. uh, what he said. So I was glad to see it here in Hani. They must have yeah, had coffee to, to do the world
0: as the world was meant to be done. Right? Was that? Uh... it was Fragerberg, I think, but maybe he got it from Kavanagh or or one of his Mm -hmm. heroes. So it's interesting. We have intellectual grandfathers and intellectual great grandfathers and mothers, I suppose, (laughs) too. So, you know, the mass is a sacrifice, but the principal goal is to make or do first Christ's sacrifice made or did something. And then we try to make or do that again. And so he comes up with two slightly different terms at the beginning. One is reconciliation. Which is the uh, being friendly again after a division. So, you know, Jesse and I have been through this process many times over over the years. (laughs) He's shaking his head. And then um, propitiation is gaining the favor or regaining the favor of another. Okay, so they sound like the same thing, right? Reconciliation, just we're friendly, but neutral. And then reconciliation, Mm -hmm. I mean, propitiation is regaining the favor of. So you can be in out of right relationship with God and back to neutral. It doesn't necessarily mean that mm. God is ready to flood you with with graces. So Christ's self offering does both of these, right? He heals the relationship of the fallen uh, world, which brings us back uh, to neutral, but then enters us also into sanctifying grace, not just restorative uh, grace. And you know mm. the interesting thing is what kind of sacrifices were offered in Eden by Adam and Eve and and company? None. Yeah. Right. Why not? They didn't. They didn't need to. Right. There was Everything no warning, was in uh, right
2: relationship. Yeah. Beca- yeah. Because were they yeah, already at that yeah.
0: superlative? Well, you know, people argue about that. That Adam and Eve were going to be glorified even further. That um, God wanted to give them more, but they grasped for it instead of waited for it, and that was the essence of the fall. But they also gave something. What were they give? What would they give to God? The spiritual sacrifice which is of, what? of, of, the, of
1: their heart, of their mm-hmm. union of wills and minds. And right.
0: If you're unfallen and, and God's showing up being nice to you, of course, you say, yes, you love me. I love you back. So this is a spiritual gift of the heart, as uh, Jean Hanis says. But after the fall, we don't have the capacity for a pure spiritual gift. And he makes a very important point here that in God's mercy, he gave us this process of sacrifice that he wanted us to do. Right, so all the sacrifices of the Old Testament are all instructed by God. Do this, do that. First fruits, do this. The other thing, Adam and Eve just didn't sit around and say, "Okay, well, we blew it." You know, how can we suck up to God this time? Mm-hmm. God was like, "Hey, I will show you." So, one of these really cool ideas is that God Himself taught men how to offer sacrifice and when, and why, and what it's about. Right? Uh,
1: you know, there's, and He even did eventually. He even did it. I mean, just didn't just Mm -hmm. tell us how to do it, but he says, I will do it so you can imitate it. You know, this this uh I'm teaching a class on the spirituality of the liturgy of the hours, and there's this wonderful line that shows up in it by Saint Augustine that says something like, In order that God might show us how to praise him, he first praised himself Mm. so that we could see how God praised himself and then we could follow suit. That's how I uh,
2: teach my kids to praise me. (laughs) (laughs) It works none of the time, but I'm still trying.
1: But that's the, that remind that I was reminded of that line. when I saw that you had written is God himself taught man how and why to offer sacrifice. here. Let me show you. And then you follow my, my Mm -hmm. lead.
0: So you guys, uh, do you have like little tricks you've learned over the years when you're out of favor with your wives? to uh to get back in favor and you said just tell me what's wrong you should know if, if you don't know i'm not going <laughs> to tell you right like, <laughs> no tell me what i did tell uh, me how to fix it but that's uh, never good enough right so yeah
1: you know, yeah you know, just time the great healer and all that you know
0: <laughs> right
2: <laughs> chris has been in the chicken coop you know for decades uh, now oh uh, um, yeah that's true <laughs> <laughs>
0: it's true with the kids no less all right so God tells him not to sacrifice. Then he does a quick thing about, you know, some of the Old Testament sacrifices. I know, Chris, you've been interested in these for a long time. And it's very hard to find a list of all the Old mm-hmm. Testament sacrifices and what they stood for. They were somewhere at different times of the day, different times of the year. Um, and he gives just a couple of pages. You know, some of the sacrifices were bloodless. We think, oh, it's always animals or, um, you know, birds or, or oxen. Um, but there are some that were just bread, flat breads made of flour and oil. And uh, some were burned completely and uh, these would be like destroyed, you know, and others were eaten by priests on the Sabbath, which is another interesting thing to talk about the Eucharist. You have round flat breads that are offered in the temple of the church and then they're eaten Mm. on the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. Um, Others were blood sacrifices. They have, you know, Hebrew names here. The the Holocaust or the Ola was which a bull was bled to death and then consumed Mm -hmm. by fire. So it's a weird thing. You have to cut the bull's throat and, and like drain all the blood out. And then burn up the animal. The I sacrifice of, a, of yeah, good
2: question. So, like I, I also heard of like covenants being made, and you would you would separate the animal in half and then burn on each each side, and then you'd walk through that. Is that still a sacrifice or is that
0: different? Yeah, the sacrifices were offered to Mark and then Thanksgiving for the covenant. So there's lots of places. Whenever the old testament pattern is whenever anybody meets God, they do a sacrifice in Thanksgiving there. So um, Moses when he sees God, oh, we're going to offer a sacrifice there. Set up an altar and, and do they, things. There. And set,
2: they build a they build a tent too.
0: Well, right, and then they move the tent around, and then they settle finally in Jerusalem. And then this highly ritualized system of um, sacrifices continues in different in different kinds. The key thing is some of them are grain, some of them are animals, some of them are blood, some of them the animals burned completely, some. Parts of the animal are burned completely, and then the priests eat the flesh. Um, and one of the cool ones was with the the sacrifice of peace, or the Zeba Shalamin, hopefully I'm saying that, right? They would actually recite Psalm 116 uh, when the animal was um, eaten. It said, what shall I render unto the Lord for his goodness to me? I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of hmm. the Lord. So does that trigger any uh, clues for you guys about when, where that comes from? Yeah,
2: yeah. Blood of the Lamb of God.
0: Well, yes, but that used to be read at Mass. It was introduced inside hmm. the Mass after the priest received the host. This is in the um, what do we call it now? Usus Antiquior, 62 Missal, whatever, yeah. whatever you call it. And then, you know, Passover, of course, is always the more important one. And everybody knows about Passover and leaving uh, Egypt and they talk about the bitter herbs and all that stuff. But Passover was actually also a a communion sacrifice. So the Paschal lamb was slain at the temple, but also in people's homes. So it's a little more than a meal. Um, I was just reading that somewhere in Michigan, they they have so many Muslims, they have permission to slaughter lambs (laughs) in their backyards now uh, because they need them for their um, Old Testament versions of their current day. uh, Well, the current day versions of the Old Testament inspiration for the sacrifice of, (laughs) of lambs. Uh, and then the victim was eaten, right? You'd eat the lamb in the family uh, meal. And um so what is all this stuff? Right? Passage from death to new life. The Israelites are going from Egypt to the promised land. And all this is the answer to to Eden, right? Adam and Eve are out of the garden. They're out of the place of of life fully life, and they have to get back together. But all this stuff, it's kind of crazy. You know, it's like, why are we worshiping? God, by slitting a bull's throats or a thousand bull's throats, you hear about these mm. descriptions of going to Jerusalem. I mean, you have cows on your farm, Chris, and mm-hmm. bulls, bulls, mm-hmm. bulls don't want to go anywhere. <laughs> Imagine mm-hmm. walking for a hundred miles with hundreds or thousands of bulls. And it must've been like a giant, like slaughterhouse, you know, all these mm-hmm. bulls having their throats cut and then drained and this flesh is consumed by fire. It must've smelled kind of like a steakhouse and must have been terrible (laughs) as a slaughterhouse. And some of those other ones, you know, grain, bread doesn't sound so so bad. But you see the typological thing there. The grain dies when it's put in the ground. Um, And then the 12 tribes were represented by these 12 breads that we're talking about. So if you burned them, they were offered to God as a victim. Um, So you have all this stuff about death, life, immolation, losing of blood, the blood being the, the, the carrying of the life force of the of the God. And so what do you have? The thing that's sacrificed stands in for people, whether they're breads or animals. And then after it was eaten, it, I mean, afterwards it was eaten in a, in a ritual meal. So Christ equates the sacrifice with his own body after the breaking of the bread. So he's saying this bread, which the sacrifice, which is me as a person, um, is kind of new because Christ saying this is me, to the priest, but it's also not that new, right? breads offered as people on behalf of others the key thing is who was the victim and who was the priest in all the other jewish sacrifices you they had a priest dis- they were distinct they yeah were the same the priest didn't slaughter himself he gave mm-hmm. grain or bread or animals or whatever now christ offers himself so he equates the priest and the victim yeah
1: yeah and that i think uh, so cardinal Ratzinger will talk a lot about this too um, but that seems to be what's what's really uh, novel and uh, heretofore impossible is that finally the distinction between the gift and the giver, the offering and the offer, the priest and the, the animal is finally overcome and they become precisely the same. And so it's a brand new sacrifice never before uh, mm-hmm. seen in that regard, at least uh, uh, in the
0: history of the world. Yeah, and we could see that in our own life, right? If you give your life for someone to save their life, wow, you are the giver and the victim. If you give them, you know, an ear of corn or something, it's like, oh, thanks, but (laughs) you didn't really give me that much. Uh, So, you know, when you imitate Christ at that high level, there's no greater love than to give your life. So there's a couple of terms that he comes up with here, you know, substitution and transfer. And I think we talked about this in in the previous episode long ago, long ago. But the idea is that, the priest can't offer himself, so he has to offer by way of an intermediary. This was called substitution. So the the priest uses the the grain or the bull or whatever, substituting for himself, and he would lay hands on it, and then it was offered to God, and the it was placed into the religious, the sacred realm. This is what is the transfer. So you can't really throw it. I mean, it might be fun to have like a giant catapult for cows to try to get them into the heavenly realm jesse's shaking his, this is like monty python I mean, you know, know. <laughs> kind of um but how do you get the animal into the uh the sacred realm and they would they would burn it right and then the smoke would carry it up into to the skies um and, and it took a religious right it wasn't just hey the smoke and therefore it goes but it was it was sent into the sacred realm and once it's in the sacred realm it it became sacred, right? It was offered and then was, came back. You know, I used to talk a bit about the spiritual microwave or whatever that you're cooked in the microwave and then you come back. Uh, It's kind of like that. And when it returns and it's eaten, the animal's flesh became the bearer of the divinity's consecrated vital life force, what he calls the energy of God. So if you eat the flesh, you become Divine, because the animal is carrying the very power of God. This is all Old Testament stuff, uh,
1: still. Okay, so yeah, I'm, my little marginal notes that I'm trying to keep score, kind of like a baseball here. So the the, the steps of Old Testament sacrifice are, as I can see it, for, from your article here: one, you identify with the offering; mm-hmm. two, you kill the offering and send it to heaven; mm-hmm. three, God sends it back; mm-hmm. and four you eat this thing it's now filled with divinization and you become reunited with god
0: appreciated okay all right so it'd be like eating radioactive food or something you would become radioactive with that uh, iodine or whatever they put in you to have those you know x-rays barium things and stuff okay Uh, so it's kind of complicated right but it's also pretty straightforward right that Why is it a meal? Why would Christ establish this as a meal? Because it's always a meal, right? You send the victim to heaven, the victim comes back, and you eat it. So when he's about to set himself up as the offering of the sacrifice and the offerer of the sacrifice, and he's going to, of course, expect you to eat it, right? Because this is how all the sacrifices work. Now, it's weird to talk about eating human flesh or you get into, you know, charges of cannibalism or whatever. It's not really appropriate for us to eat human flesh. Um, so he does it in one of the grain sacrifices, which is also very old in you know, a tradition um, and also part of the the Passover uh, tradition as well. Is, so Christ doesn't need to – oh, go ahead, Jesse. Yeah,
2: is there an element of purgation in any of this too? Like is that is that a part of this or is it is that something separate?
0: Yeah, I mean some of the offerings that it mentioned here were, you know, uh, given over for the forgiveness of sins once a year. Um, there's also the scapegoat, which you may remember, was the goat that was sent out into the desert and bearing all the sins of Israel. So you have this being made perfect, it's part of it. And you know, the all the language is the lamb has to be perfect without blemish, all this sort of stuff. So there's purgation. He I need not talk Michael, as much as about Michael
2: that. Scott would call it the uh, he, they're making me an uh, escape goat. <laughs> an escapegoat. <laughs> 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 so
0: unfortunately, the scapegoat does not escape. Yeah. Um, but um. So what do you think about all this stuff here, right? So Christ is the high priest, but he's also the lamb. He's the victim. He sheds his own blood. Uh, so he doesn't need any animals to offer this sort of intermediary uh, way. But here's the cool thing here is you. If he's redeeming himself or redeeming humanity, he can't redeem himself, but redeeming humanity. The key thing here is that he, he, as the all were created through him, all was created for him. He's the microcosm of all creation. So therefore, he's also redeeming all of of creation as well. So what Jean Honey says, the whole universe was super eminently transferred from the terrestrial physical world to the supernatural world, all of creation. And this is all foreshadowed in the Old Testament sacrifices, uh, but then becomes perfect in Christ and reintegrates humanity and creation with the creator As he is the priest and the victim and then we receive that victim's body just the way you know all sacrifices uh almost all of them except the ones that are holocaust are are eaten and that's the basic premise for why christ would start a meal or have a meal as the completion of his own sacrifice and a continuation of that sacrifice too all right Hmm. That's the mm-hmm. intro to this. So, any that's any the questions? intro, yeah. <laughs> and, that's, and pres- that's only page pres- two of the article.
2: <laughs> Presumably, you know, you talked about, you know, why is it a meal because it always was, but also those instructions came from God, right? Yes. So, like, you know, it was, it was his plan all the way from the very beginning. I don't think people, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think people in the Old Testament were like, ah, uh, yeah, let's just do it this way. Like, it was informed and
0: inspired by God. Yeah, that's the whole thing that, that Honey, the point Honey makes is that sacrifice was directed by God. The long descriptions in the Old Testament of first fruits and do this, and actually some of it is enough to make you totally OCD, right? It's like, oh my gosh, it has to be perfect and this color and this amount of stuff and no blemish. Like if we really had to go to mass that way, we'd be pretty uh, pretty nervous all the time about not, uh, not getting it right. And so the, the question then is, okay, Christ redeems us, but this all has to be applied through time. So what uh, Hani says in all the great religions you know, there usually is some great sacrifice offered by a god or some, you know, heroic figure. Um, but then that redemption has to live in concrete ways, right, in our world and over time. And that's where we get the term mystery from, you know, mysterion, later translated into sacrament, as as we know. So to celebrate the divine mysteries means to enter into that same reality again. And we've talked about anamnesis and other things before. Um, but that's an essential element of religion is you have to make the eternal into the here and now. And that this is what the mass does. The eternal action of Christ makes the here and now encounterable uh, for us. And so Christ had to start a right Do this in memory of me, right? I'm going to do this once, but we're going to apply it over time, and uh, gave the apostles the power to do it. That's the key thing. He said, to them, you do it. And presumably, he wouldn't tell them to do it if he didn't give them <laughs> the power to do it, right? So, there's this capacity to continue the action of Christ, equating his own sacrificial action with the the meal. And uh, that's the start. That's the start of things. This is my body. This is my blood. Um, they become equated, of course, Christ. God, he can do what he wants, um, and then continued in the life of the Eucharist through a ritual meal. That's the language you use all the time. And I know you know, Chris, Monsignor Menon used to talk all the time about the the meal people and the sacrifice people. Mm-hmm. And uh, we came up with an answer for that. It's right there in all the church's books that it's a sacrificial meal, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which isn't just a meal that happens to have sacrificial stuff. It's the nature of all sacrifices that they were offered then you ate him, and uh, this is made real through ritual action, which is why we have a rite. All right, anything you have to say about that? I'm trying to rush through this because there's so much to say, but I don't yeah, want to rush yeah. through your thing.
1: No, well, I think um, you know the, these steps about identifying with the victim, being sent to heaven, being returned, uh, divinized, and then eating it uh, that was foreshadowed in the Old Covenant, perfected in Christ, and now made present in the Mass. It's the same kind of Uh, interior logic or system or step-by-step. But I think what, you know, the the couple of things that come to my mind is um, what Christ allows us to do in this sacrifice that he's established is now we need to identify like he did with what's Mm -hmm. offered. And that Mm -hmm. until that happens, then Christ is just substituting for us and we're glad he did. But I think that the, the idea is, is that he's not simply to stand in. We're supposed to be united to him so that we can become that sacrifice
0: mm-hmm. too. Does this make active and conscious and full participation uh, <laughs> take a yeah. new, uh, a new I, life for you, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that so? is different
0: from being the lector.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, what it boils down to then is getting your entire self joined to that sacrifice of Christ. So he's no longer just a a representation or a a replacement or a substitution, but somehow you are one, both, you know, being uh, given up to God.
0: And I suppose, yeah, go ahead. He uh, has a word for this called the memo drama. Hmm. Mimo is like same, you know, same drama, like a mimeograph. Um, And so it's not just a remembrance as in, we've talked about the passion plays before, right? That's a kind of remembrance. He says that this puts people, puts Christians in, it makes them contemporaries with Christ. You're in the same mm. time, either he's in your time or you're in his time mm. or both. And this is where we talk about anamnesis, right? It's the making real uh, by remembering. And it's a dramatic uh, representation. So Memorial is a really charged word. It doesn't just mean, oh yeah, I remember, you know, when I was five years old, I learned how to time my shoe. It means this thing is real. The memory is coming back. We're in contemporary time. Christ is saying, do this in memory of me. He's about to offer himself. Now we know we've been baptized into the membership of the mystical body. So when he offers himself, we're himself, we're being offered as well. And so our job is to will and love and intellect to say, yes, I allow this. Yes, I allow this. Yes, I do this. Yes, I allow this. But notice it's a pattern, it's a rite, it's a ritual, it conforms with all of history, it doesn't undo the old testament in order to uh to do it now. And so he he mentions that this this ritual is has a supra human origin. In other words, it came from Jesus, who's God. And we can have a passion play, that's our human origin to try to remember. Uh, but so doing this can only be performed by a qualified agent who has. The power to do this to transform to take the role of christ and transform bread and wine into the body of blood christ okay well he went back to the father so what who's going to do it now
1: it's your, ordained, it's your ordained priest right
0: yeah. yeah so he gave this power to the apostles but- they hand it to the next generation and so on yeah what do you say
1: Chris? <laughs> well i guess i'm gonna say by extension too, the the baptized priest too i mean i don't have the power to change bread and wine into body but i have the power to offer myself along with that and let God uh, uh, transubstantiate me, I suppose, after a fashion or transfigure or transform me if I can join, be joined to that bread and wine and be changed into the, to the perfect sacrifice
0: with Christ. Right. So he has a nice sentence here that the mass covers all these bases. It's like the perfect thing. He says it's the perfect type of ritual remembrance. Here's why. It has the qualified person, the priest, who's been authorized by Christ and, you know, the, the apostles and their successors. Then he reads the sacred account of the divine act, and that's the actualization. So the way you would actualize some reality from the past is you would you would read it, you know, speak the word, just like the Father speaks the word. Then the priest identifies himself with Christ, who's the victim, right? Because this is what the high priest did, right? Identified himself with the victim. And then does the gestures and repronounces exactly the divine words. That's a key thing. You know, we always talk about, well, is it valid or not? We always say, get back to the words of institution. This is my body. Now, that's a kind of liturgical minimalism. But the point is, you have to use the words of Christ. You have to use the gestures of Christ. And you do what Christ did. And then this is the reality of um, how it all goes. Now, Mass doesn't have to reproduce the Last Supper in the upper room and doesn't have to, you know, reproduce the the crucifixion. But Hani does some really cool stuff here with sort of taking apart the uh, different actions of the Mass. And I found some of this in, um, oh, who's the guy who wrote the big history of the Roman Rite? Uh, You know, Youngman. Youngman, that's right. Yep. So he makes a big point about the double consecration. First, the bread. And then the wine. And I know maybe you know some of this, Jesse. Maybe you know some of this, Chris. What do you think? Why not just put them both? You know, one pat in one hand, chalice in the other. Why do the same words twice? Because
2: that's not how Christ did it.
0: Yes, and the Christ did it for a symbolic reasons. And we're doing it for the symbolic reason. Remember, we're trying to make present again the actions of Christ. And you say, okay, well, he said these things at the Last Supper. But he's equating the Last Supper with his own death on the cross so white body over here and blood over there
1: to symbolize he's become a victim whose Mm -hmm. body and blood is separated he's been killed and sent to to heaven
2: oh yeah and you're you're dead yeah dennis you mentioned that like the 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 meaning, ancient times understanding of like, if you blood was the life source, it wasn't mm-hmm. your brain activity or your heartbeat or whatever. It was blood. Like blood was if so, if your blood was out of your body,
0: there You're was dead. there was no life. Dead. Oh, dead. That's yeah. not just ancient world. That's like now. You know, you bleed to well, death. Well, yeah, yeah. No, So they that. did that with some of these bulls. You say, well, why would they be bled to death? I mean, you have to – if you're going to eat it, you really have to drain the blood, as I learned at the Johnson farm one Easter when they <laughs> shot a little lamb in the head Easter morning. And Hey, hey. I was a year-old lamb. Gee, a year-old lamb. Yeah, I know. So you have the death of Christ. First, the blood, and then the body separated. So this is an immolation. It's one of the immolation um, sacrifice things where the blood is drained, as in the ancient uh, sacrifices. And what do we say? As soon as the – Red is consecrated, and the wine is consecrated. What do people we do? We proclaim your death. Oh, Lord. And we profess your resurrection, even though it hasn't yet—you know—sort of happened yet, ritually. Hmm. So there's a moment, and he's like, oh, yeah, we proclaim your death, oh, Lord. Why do we do that? Well, because the death of Christ has just been made real. Now, you say it doesn't look like the crucifixion. No, but that's okay, because the form of a ritual meal is the separation of body from blood. And there's, there's uh, your death now the cool thing about this is at least in the roman right there's the fraction which probably most people don't see because the priest does it sort of on his own and quietly and you know, you're singing the any's day and stuff so what happens in the fraction either of you anybody know
2: would like pr- practically speaking or yeah. theologically just just practically what does the priest do uh the, well the the hostess fraction uh fractured whatever yeah, broken in half and then a piece of the Eucharist is placed in the chalice with the blood, so reuniting the body and the blood. Mm-hmm. And then we have the doxology shortly thereafter.
0: Okay, so let's that, go. That yeah, that's right. Yep. So the fraction, okay. Christ's body is broken right on the cross, and here we take this bread and break it. And we're singing on uh at that moment, right? <laughs> Lamb of God. So we're talking about Christ as the as this victim. And then when he breaks a small piece off and it goes in the chalice, there you have the reuniting of body and blood, which is this signification of the, the resurrection. And so the priest's prayer at that time, and made this mingling of the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ bring eternal life to those who receive it as hmm. acknowledgement of the uh, eternal life and the resurrection. So this is what the ancient pattern of sacrifice, you know, would be, you would eat or drink the animal. You would ask for the life of the God. You'd become a bearer of that, uh, that life. And so this full conscious and active participation thing isn't just feel included. It's, Hey, Christ just died right there. When you say we proclaim your death and profess your resurrection, you're saying, Oh yeah, I'm entering into this experience of, of Christ's death. And um, so I have a quote here that was really nice. It comes from, Hey, Sacrosanical Concilium, number 48, um, The that people should offer the immaculate victim not only through the hands of the priest, but also with him mm. and in so doing offer themselves. Mm. So if Christ is the lamb, you want to be joined to that lamb so that when Christ is sac- sacrificed, he's taking you along with him, but he won't do that against your will. So you have to form your your will to say, yes, I will go where you go. You're going to say something, Chris? Mm-mm.
1: Just uh, Amen.
0: Amen, amen, brother. All right. <laughs> now he he explains the Byzantine uh, tradition, and it's cool. And you know, Chris, I know you read this already. I, I didn't. I just sorry I didn't send it to you, Jesse. I should have. I guess. Um, but he talks. You know, the Byzantine ritual is often full of many long and complex kind of ritual actions that we East, we Westerners tend to romanticize, and I think the Easterners wonder why does mass take three hours. Uh, but when you start thinking about it, here's what they do. Uh, Before the consecration, they place the the bread on a patent and it has a cover with a little hanging star on it, like on a chain. And that signifies that the star that marked Christ's place in Bethlehem. So already they're starting to say Christ is here, will come here. Then they cover it in a cloth, signifies his uh, hidden life in the world. And they take it in a procession. This is before consecration through the church. It's the triumphal procession of the universal king. And here's one of the cool things. They have multiple loaves, but one of them, they take the center out of it. They cut the middle out of it and they call it uh, the lamb. And they take a little knife. It's like the shape of a spear and they stick it the inside of the bread, hmm. just like the spear was stuck in the side of Christ. And they say, one of the soldiers pierced his side with the lance and blood and water flowed out. So this is kind of Eastern richness, right? But it's the same kind of thing, right? The signification or the representation of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ is, is right there. And uh, so it's in the form of a ritual meal. So here we have, you know, kind of the summary of what, you know, Mass is about. It's offered by a priest who acts in the person of Christ. In other words, here's the the celebrant of this memo drama, this same drama. He offers the victim, who is Christ, right? He asks that the grain be equated with Christ and transferred to the spiritual realm. Um, and then he does the same thing with the wine and then the, you know, given over to the heavenly realm, you know, the, the Eucharistic prayer one has that line, may your angel take this to your altar in heaven, which is the same kind of thing. And then it comes back as the bearer of Christ's own divine life. Mm. And so you see how way this is way more than is it real presence or not? Are the words of con- uh, consecration said properly? Those are important, right? But the real presence here is, A really important kind of thing it's not just a test to see if you're orthodox enough or to see if you're a protestant or not uh but to say yeah the sacrificial meal appears here as bread and wine no cannibalism uh at all and we live it through this memo drama which fulfills all the old testament types and does something totally new Mm -hmm. the bloody cross becomes the ritual meal
2: and it's why it all matters to you you what strikes me as interesting from a you know human uh standpoint is that uh i'm it's not required that i don't necessarily do anything (laughs) you know what i mean like this is gonna this is christ's divine action however we get we have the opportunity to participate in this Mm -hmm. and uh you know i'm like probably just spend the rest of my life trying to do that the best way as Mm. possible. Like that's really the goal here, right. Is that how can we more and more do that? I can tell you this from a practical standpoint, as a father with four young children, it is remarkably difficult (laughs) to do that. Uh, uh, You know, like, you know, at mass on Sundays and things like that. And so but i think there's great charity and mercy in that understanding uh from god at least i, I hope so mm-hmm. yeah. uh you know his uh you know god's creation bells will go and then zelly will say something like
0: shh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, tell right, the bell ringer right. to be quiet yeah, yeah.
2: Right. yeah all right zelly all right yeah
0: Thanks. there's an old episode of the simpsons where a comet is hurtling toward earth and they have two rockets and they're trying to you know decide who should be brought to this new planet that they've discovered. And of course, Lisa, who's really smart, goes on the planet to... The new planet and then bart and um homer get on a rocket and they think they're going to the planet but they're actually going straight to the sun which is and they're on the plane with rosie o'donnell and a bunch of annoying people and uh <laughs> oh yeah the she's other, like
2: clang clang clang, with clang the trolley. With the trolley.
0: Yeah. and the other one's going to the new planet has like scientists and olympic people on it and stuff so in a sense you know for us all we have to do is get on the get on the rocket, right? Active participation for you, Jesse, with all the kids and you too, Chris, the little kids just, yes, Lord. I say, yes, I'm one of you. I was baptized into your body. This is why baptism really, really matters, right? What do we talk about being incorporated in the mystical body of Christ? Well, if you're incorporated in that body, then you can offer sacrifice, but you can, of yourself and you can be on the rocket of Christ's own sacrifice of himself. And, um, it's a lot and, more and than hopefully
2: Rosie O'Donnell is on that rocket
0: too. Yeah, well, hopefully she's you know, uh, transformed by divine life. She's from my hometown, do you know? She grew up like two minutes away from where I grew up. <laughs> same high school, same everything. Oh wow. Good Long Islander. Uh well, Long Islander anyway. Um, <laughs> but she's more Long Island than I am, telling the truth. But the whole reason I thought this mattered is this internal reality is the fulfillment of the old testament, and it's the fulfillment of Christ's offering and it's represented in this other way and it's a lot more than just uh proof texts for did father say it right sure hmm. hopefully father said it right but hopefully everybody realizes oh yeah this did is the you participate of, right in the paschal mystery even though it doesn't really look like the paschal mystery no. but it's the paschal mystery in this lovely heavenly version of of the sacrifice of Christ the eternal banquet and so that's the last part of it really is that God doesn't make us nail ourselves to a cross. He says, come be part of the party because it's already been Mm -hmm. done. All you have to do is uh, show up and say yes. Mm -hmm. So more Jean Hani
2: wisdom for us. All right. Well, I'm going to be digesting that one for a while, I think. I hope so. Uh, Speaking of digesting, Chris, do you want to digest a liturgy question? Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? In my case, sir, the question is totally without meaning.
2: Okay, uh, this week we have a question from Matthew. And I'm going to just kind of surmise the first part. So Matthew says he attended a mass, and at some point in the in, uh, homily, there was a or after mass, there was a reflection on a story about a, a shepherd Uh, during the nativity of our Lord that didn't have anything to offer was able to hold the child Jesus for Joseph and Mary because they were exhausted. And uh, that was what he had to offer. So there's kind of this, uh, you know, uh, story or, you know, emotional component to this. And uh, I'll I'll skip to his question right now. He says, uh, all that being said, Would I be able to incorporate this particular shepherd when praying the rosary? More broadly speaking, while meditating with the rosary, is there an element of personal interpretation that can be explored, or should it be focused solely on the canonized scripture it is utilized? So, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about this, uh, you know, liturgy and devotion. There's kind of this tension that goes back and forth. Chris, uh, any comments on this?
1: Mm. Yeah, I think uh, devotional prayer, personal prayer, even though they're not free-form things that you you can always develop on your own. I mean, especially something like the rosary follows kind of a canonical pattern that should be respected. But it's still, if you're praying it by yourself, I do think it allows for a bit of uh, uh, personal tailoring to one's uh, uh, needs and uh, temperaments and whatnot. So I I think that could there would be allowance for that. You know, I was asked a similar question. Not too long ago, somebody wondered if when they prayed the rosary and they did the Hail Mary, if they could say, Holy Mary, Mother of God, and my mother, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death day. And I thought, well, I mean, you can't, you can't go around changing the Hail Mary, but if you're praying by yourself and you want, to, I, I, think, I think it's permissible to do that privately to help you to pray better. What do you think, Dennis?
0: Yeah, private prayer has a lot of latitude for personal expression. Um, I was talking to you guys before about you know our Angelico fellows our student group here run through the Center for Beauty and culture and we have a liturgically related dessert every uh, month we have our meeting and so we had the focaccia de befana this time which is the sweet Italian bread but it has to do with this woman supposedly in the mythology of Italy that the three wise men stopped along the way looking for Jesus and asked for help and she was busy and cranky and she didn't say <laughs> yes and uh apparently she um, had some kind of bad feelings about this later regret and so she started throwing sweet breads out to babies here and there and then eventually got merged with this uh, mother nature goddess who was an ancient mm-hmm. thing that used to go around and sprinkle new life down the chimneys of houses because this was in the spring when you know the land would become fertile again and so now and they, on Epiphany, they have this bread with the baby in it, you know, like uh, the king cake because they're looking for the baby Jesus, just like the three wise men. Here's a total mix of like pagan, a witch flying around, throwing stuff down your chimney. It's a little bit of Santa Claus. It's a little bit of Thor even because that's where the down the chimney came from. A Thor <laughs> threw fire down your chimneys apparently, and that's where the gift of fire came from. So what are we supposed to do with that? You know, like, it's kind of cool to look for the baby in the bread, but then this Befana lady is a a witch and said no to the three wise men. Should we just get rid of that stuff? I am asking you a question on your question instead of a comment on the original question. But so it's like Santa Claus too, down the chimney. Do we get rid of that stuff? I think as long as it's not uh, dangerous to the faith, as long as it's not harmful, Uh, it's become a lively tradition it reminds us of looking for the baby jesus and uh fundamentally private you want to incorporate that into the liturgy but i'd say would not anything you would not right anything that would uh amplify and bring into the culture the truths of the faith even if they're not literally scripturally accurate as long as they're not harmful i would say sure why not why not what do you think jesse
2: yeah, I mean, I'm kind of in agreement, you know, that there's more latitude for personal prayer. I kind of told you guys, you know, I had heard this style of praying the rosary that John Paul II would endorse, you know, where you would kind of add elements of the particular mystery of that decade into the the Hail Mary or, you know, something like that. And yeah, that's not the, the form, you know, Hail Mary prayer. And that's probably not what you're going to be praying normally. But as a way to kind of make it less rote and kind of add a little more of that personal element to it yeah absolutely Mm -hmm. uh matthew i hope that answers your question and if you have a question you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com or tweet us at liturgyguys thank you and god God bless bless. god bless us everyone except chris
1: Another episode of Liturgy Guys has mercifully
0: come to an end.
2: Our hosts are Chris Get Out of My Dreams and Into My Carsons, Dennis Big McNamara, and Jesse Y-O-Y-O-Weiler.
0: Our producers are Michael Don't Be So Coy, and Nathan First Round Draft Pickman. Our epiclesis inspector is Isabel Ringing. Our liturgical bookkeeper is Miss L. Romano. Our official aerobics instructor is Jen Uflecht. Our enforcer of choral discipline is Don B. Flat. Our official rubrics interpreter is Dewey Neal. Our self-gift provider is Kenosis. Our simplicity enforcer is Fran Siskin. And lastly, our crack team of confessors is Dewey, Shriveham, and Howe. And even though overstalls become understalls when they hear us say it, we are the, the Liturgy, Liturgy Guys. Guys. Now that's a podcast.